Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. So I went to speak with Dr. Gerhard Nothold, superintendent for the Evangelical Reformed Church. And he agreed it would be a win-win solution. He encouraged me to apply for service with the German Reformed Church. However, he cautioned me that there was a proper protocol to such things, and I should not yet mention the Göttingen position, the chaplain's position I was interested in. First, he said, apply for service, and then once approved for service in the church, then I could apply for the position at Göttingen. So I gave him a letter of application for service to work in in the German Reformed Church that evening. I waited an agonizing long time for an answer. Four days... Four days, no, it's not what you think, it really was a long time, but just four days before the Göttingen position was to start, I get a letter in the mail, hallelujah, got here in time, and I tore open the envelope, blah, 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 approved for service, blah, 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 assigned to Beta Kaspel, not Göttingen. I was out of money. I didn't have a choice. Five days later, I was in Beta Cuspel. It did not look at all like Göttingen. Beta Cuspel, you have to understand, it's five miles from the dikes that hold back the North Sea. The community is four feet below sea level. It's a rural dairy farming community spread out over 40 square miles. You can imagine how much walking I had had to do during that time before I could get a a German driver's license. I had to walk everywhere in the winter weather over 40 square miles. As I like to say, but it's true, My parish comprised 250 souls and 650 head. (laughs) In the two years I was there, I delivered more calves than I baptized babies. (laughs) True story. I knew it would be a tough assignment when I learned that Sunday worship attendants averaged four. Do I need to tell you that I was angry with Nauthold for sending me there? He knew I had really volunteered for the chaplaincy at the university. So I called, I agitated, I wrote letters, all to no avail. Finally, months later, The secretary at the Senate office explained that Nauthold had already, he already had a candidate back then to send to Göttingen, and he never had any intention of, of making me the chaplain. 
But he knew that there was this church with a reputation for making trouble. And he needed an older, a little bit older, an experienced pastor to send there. And so when he found an American, an experienced American pastor, who was desperate for a job and could not say no, he connived from the very first to send me to Beta Kespel. I had been lied to, intentionally deceived, and used. I felt violated. I was furious. So what do you do when your plans fail and your dreams come crashing down around you? Especially when you thought God, God somehow was doing a miracle for you. But the miracle doesn't happen. You find leaders you had trusted were, for whatever reason, good or bad, well-meaning or not, who were perhaps not entirely forthcoming, leaving you feeling tricked or even maybe a little used and all of that within the church among fellow believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. How, how do you handle that? What do you do about that? <coughs> Excuse me. Well, as any, to start with, as any quick glance in the mirror will confirm, The church is made up of pretty much the same kind of raw material as the rest of the world. You know, yep, there I am. A sinner, like everybody else, except saved by the sheer grace of God. And, uh, yeah, I see you're a sinner too. And so is Superintendent Nordholt and Pastor Nate and Pastor Steve. And we could make a seriously long list of other sinners if we bothered to take the time. And sinners, as we know from eyeing the world, are prone to bend the truth, if not outright lie, maybe even deceive. However, if sinners weren't allowed in the church at all anymore, every church and every pulpit would be empty. And we would all be bound for hell. I mean, you're welcome to go to hell if you want to. I would rather not. So that we're here at all has something to do with what God calls 
saving grace. And it's all purely grace. So when people you've trusted disappoint or disillusion you, what do you do about it? How do you handle it? And how do you not handle it? Turn with me, please, to the epistle to the Ephesians. Chapter 4. I'll start at verse 22, 422 through, I think, 32. Yes. Hear the word of God. You were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil." Thieves must give up stealing, rather let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up. Excuse me, but only what is useful for building up as there is need so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. So put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. May God bless to us this word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What does it mean to be living a new life in Jesus Christ? We're told, put off the old self, the old life, and put on the new life, put on the new man. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus died because of and on behalf of those sins of yours. Mine too. But he would have done it for one. He would have done it for you. Just your sins alone required a death. And it was going to be his or yours. And he took it. So your old self died with him on the cross. And through his resurrection, 
you too were raised with him into a new life. So how can you be dead and made new in Christ, yet continue in the same old sins that put him on the cross in the first place? Clearly, that old self has to be put down. You are a new person, recreated in the image of God, conforming to the character of Jesus Christ. That is who you are in the eyes of God. So be who you are in Christ. Be who you are. It's a new life, and that shows in a new lifestyle. First, Ephesians reminds us, it's a life of truthfulness. The epistle actually begins there by quoting Zechariah 8.16. You might not have realized that that's an Old Testament quotation. Speak the truth to one another. We must be honest with one another. By the way, also honest with ourselves. We, I don't know about you, but I find I lie worse to myself than I do to anybody else. Just saying. And I hate it when I do that. So he called, we're called to be honest with ourselves and honest with one another especially within the household of faith and the family of God. No lies, even well-intentioned ones. No secrets. That being said, by the way, we must also remember to be gentle and tender-hearted. That is, telling the truth does not justify being abrasive or harsh or abusive. I've known people, have you known people who were always going to tell people the truth, and they did it in the most hurtful way possible. That's just, that, you know, that's people doing peopleish things. Lord, have mercy on us all. And that's why if you back up a little bit in, in Ephesians 4, verse 15, it specifies, oh, by the way, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Secondly, and it's interesting, after speak truthfulness and love, it kind of gets right into this. Second, deal with your anger issues. I've already preached on anger once a few weeks ago. Now it kind of gets applied here. The epistle here, it begins this by quoting another Old Testament passage from Psalms, Psalms chapter 4, verse 5. Be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. Notice that there's a distinction made here between anger and sin. Anger is not automatically or necessarily a sin. It is a spontaneous response to something you experience or think, pain or fear, sense of injustice, whatever it is. And you can be angry, he says, but do not let it 
cross over to the level of conscious, willful, intentional transgression. That is, what matters to God is not if you get angry, it's what you're going to do about your anger. What you do when you are angry. So at what point does anger become sinful? Well, here's a practical guideline. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, which means don't be angry past sundown. Well, in Jewish reckoning, each new day begins not at midnight, nor at sunrise, but it begins at sundown. Uncleanness, for example, only lasted until sunset. That is, if a good Jew touched something dead, ate something really nasty, or was otherwise contaminated, put on their jacket and found it was mildewed, whatever. He takes a bath, he washes his clothes, and it's all gone by sundown. That's about how long it takes for a bad case of the willies to wear off, right? Can't believe I ate that. But by sundown, you let it go, you move on. And the thing is, the thing is, throughout the Old Testament, God does not hold it against you after sundown. God doesn't hold it against you after sundown. So also with anger, the sun goes down, the heat of the day is over, the cool of the evening then cooler heads should prevail. If anger keeps you awake at night, if it continues the next day, then that is a sin. It's part of the old life that put Jesus on the cross. Get rid of it. Quick. As soon as you realize it's there, get rid of it. Get rid of it because there are consequences if you don't get rid of it. If you nurture your anger, we're told, you make room for the devil. I'm just quoting Ephesians. You make room for the devil. That is, you give the devil opportunity to get his claws into you so he can work in you and work through you to accomplish his destructive purposes. Well, what purposes? Well, just kind of in a nutshell, the devil is called, in Revelation chapter 12, the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the brethren, which means, it's a technical word, that he raises charges and presents a case against others. As we see from the opening chapters of Job, the devil uh, 
comes there and appears as the Satan. Now, Satan is not a name. It is a title. The Satan. You're supposed to have a V with it. The Satan. It means the lawyer. You always suspected that, didn't you? (laughs) It's literally, it means the prosecuting attorney. He's the DA, investigating DA, who's out to expose the sins of others and see that they get justice, meaning that they are to be found, doesn't mean that they're to be acquitted, no, no, they are to be found guilty, they are to be publicly shamed, and they are to be punished. He pursues neither restitution nor restoration, certainly no repentance, but only retribution. His idea of justice is not redemptive, but is wholly vindictive. It's the devil's obsession to drag others down in the mud and destroy them. And nowhere does the devil want to gain a foothold as much as in the very church of God among the people of God. Now you see why the devil is in such trouble with God because our God is a God of grace and forgiveness and restoration. And the devil has no clue what that means. No clue. So we're warned. What this warning in Ephesians means is when you persist in anger, even if you want to justify your anger as being, quote-unquote, righteous indignation, what you are actually doing is making yourself a willing accomplice of evil. Ephesians then goes on. This is almost parenthetic. Said third, be an active blessing to others. So we're shown another example of the new life in Christ, and it means this. Thieves, for example, thieves who have made their living off the misery of others cannot continue in their old way of life. Because of what Jesus has done for them, he's told, get a job. Work, actually it literally says, work good with your hands. That's not, that's good not as in the sense of doing, you're working really well. No, you are working good. Doing good with your hands. In your work, do good to others with your hands. And you do that not so that you won't be a burden to others, which is kind of what we would expect to see, but no, it's so you can share it with the needy. So you can be a blessing to others. Work good and be a blessing to others instead. So it's not just avoid sin. Don't just avoid sin. 
but turn your life into a sacrifice of praise and a positive source of service and blessing to others. And then fourth, if the labor, if the labor of your hands is to be a blessing to others, how much more should the words of your lips? The new life means we put to death all evil talk. Now the word there, safros, or sapros, sorry, sapros, means literally speech that is rotten. It's like where your t- words are like rotten fruit. They stink to heaven. Evil words are, evil talk is rotten or harmful. And then he goes on, presenting on the opposite side, it, you're to speak words that build up, that edify other people, and words that give grace. So if we want to understand what is meant by this evil talk, by contrast, it means evil talk means harmful words, words that tear others down, harmful words that do not have grace in them. Words that do not have grace in them. Hold that thought. Because fifth, next, we're warned not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, I've heard preachers claim this is what Jesus called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which actually means attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to the workings of the devil. Or an alternate interpretation among many charismatics that grieving the Spirit means instead that you resist the moving and inspiration of the Spirit. Actually, this is an allusion to the Old Testament. It's another quote from the Old Testament about the stubborn Hebrews in the wilderness. Isaiah 63.10 says, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. That's where it comes from here. So remember, back then, the Hebrews complained and grumbled. They agitated against their leaders. They blamed them for everything that they thought was going wrong. And in Ephesians, what does that mean in Ephesians? Well, the context tells us. It says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Namely, put away bitterness, wrath, anger, wrangling, slander, and malice. What was it that got the Hebrews in the wilderness in such trouble when they spoke against Moses? It was bitterness, wrath, anger, wrangling, slander, and malice. So don't grieve the Spirit. So you put away bitterness, wrath, anger, wrangling, slander, malice. You see, the problem of evil talk has led us back, straight back to the problem of unresolved anger. Evidently, the congregation there was having trouble with conflict and infighting and anger within the congregation between the saints of God. Talk without grace in it, words without grace. It's when we harbor anger and cultivate an attitude of bitterness and wrath, which spills over into our behavior in in arguing and slander. That grieves the Holy Spirit. 
when we become so self-righteous in our anger that we accuse the brethren through threats, insinuations, suspicions, malicious conspiracy theories, it doesn't matter. We make ourselves a tool of the devil, and that grieves the Holy Spirit. Am I wrong? That's what it says. Since KPC is made up of pretty much the same kinds of sinners as every other congregation, this is my 16th transitional church, my 19th church that I've served in altogether. After a while, you don't really find any new sins. We're not really not that creative. What it means, though, this church has its own stories of saints who have not understood grace, who have not spoken grace-filled words, nor graciously forgiven like God in Christ forgave them, and have grieved deeply the Holy Spirit. I'm going to step on some toes. I will not name names, but I'm going to step on some toes. I prayed a lot about it, and the Lord said, stand up and speak truth. And I said, oh, Lord, but, you know, I'm a little more tender-hearted than that. <laughs> I really am. I know no one wants to believe it, but I really am. But when the Lord called me into the ministry, one of the things he told me like Jeremiah, he says, I am going to make your forehead like adamant to stand up, to speak his word, and do what needs to be done. I didn't realize how painful the process of turning into adamant was going to be. I would have re renegotiated it with the Lord if I had. Oh, Lord, can't, can't I just be a tender heart? No, 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 I need a hard head. Uh, this problem of not letting go of anger and speaking and living and doing without grace, uh, it's nowhere been clearer illustrated than in the aftermath to the collapse of the city of hope. There's a lesson here that all of us can and need to benefit from. It shows what happens in a church, but also in life, in a family, in a community, in a nation, in a world where anger is left to go unchecked. For those who missed last week's, just in a nutshell. For background, City of Hope was a grandiose project that was based on misinformation. It was an expensive scam perpetrated upon inexperienced, naive, and way too trusting church officers and pastors. Warning voices were not heard, not because anyone in the church intended deceit, 
but because everyone believed so desperately that this faltering project was and had to be a wondrous miracle in the making that they persisted in hope even against all outward circumstances. Fortunately for all of us, stupidity is not a sin. I completely understand it. I am so glad that, that I, have, I met and courted Cece and that she condescended to marry me. <laughs> because I had, I had a, a pattern of running after women, well, how to say, in dating, I think the best way is where I was more into them than they were into me. You've heard that? But I couldn't see it because I wanted so desperately for it to be true that I couldn't accept in my heart of hearts when it wasn't. Have some of you been in similar kinds of situation? Maybe it wasn't a romance now, don't raise your hands. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. So I understand this entirely. I've been there. I've unfortunately lived it six, seven, nine times. For stupidity is not a sin. Hallelujah. So what happened? Church bought the land. They, then they learned it could never be developed. They still had to pay closing costs, mortgage interest payments, and because, whether you knew this or not, um, tax exemptions for church property only kick in after the building is finished and worship services start. Till then you have to pay taxes on it. Also, when agricultural land, this was a weird thing here, I've never heard of before, but when agricultural land in this community is, is uh, rezoned for development, the buyer has to go back and back pay several years of property taxes as if it had been zoned commercial residential all along. That alone cost over $400,000. As the KPC got increasingly behind on its mortgage payments, bank threatened to seize the assets of the church. Two days before the final deadline, the city of Virginia Beach committed federal funds to buy the property from the church. And the church was saved. God had graciously delivered the church but only after it had spent, well, the estimates go from 1.2 million to 2.1. The reality is probably somewhere there in between in unreimbursable realtor commissions, interest, taxes, so on and so forth. Financial guru David Ramsey, if you listen to David Ramsey on radio sometimes, David Ramsey would call this a stupid tax. And sooner or later, everybody has to pay 
a stupid tax. Churches too. Well, what happened? Church members felt disappointed, disillusioned. Some were angry. And there were some who were especially furious. They charged the congregation had been intentionally lied to and deceived by their leaders. They insinuated that somebody in the church had siphoned off 2.1 million to enrich themselves, and with bulldog ferocity, they were determined to get to the bottom of this. Spread their anger among church members, among home groups, They spread rumors and allegations, suspicions and conspiracy theories, made telephone calls to spread the bitterness, the slander, the wrangling, the rancor, the malice across the church. Is this starting to sound like Ephesians 4? Started dragging members and officers before the session where they were grilled, bullied, shamed, sometimes for hours at a time. An investigation became an inquisition. Friends, that is how the inquisition got started. Read your church history. That's how it starts. They accused the brethren without regard for the book of order, due process, the right of legal representation, or anything like that. One target, who was in fact innocent of any of the charges, was forced to resign and make a public apology. Then they went after the next one. And the next. And the next. Always looking for someone to blame and punish. Eventually, they felt bold enough to go after Pastor Nate. That vindictiveness did more damage to this church than the collapse of the City of Hope ever could. That is what destroys a church. Hear me, I've swept up the remnants of churches that were destroyed by just that spirit. Of accusation. An implacable anger disguised as justice, without grace, without forgiveness, without redemption, and we make ourselves instruments of Satan. Excuse me, the Satan. hoping that the Presbytery might side with them and remove Nate Atwood from the pulpit of KPC. This circle petitioned Presbytery's ministerial committee who then appointed an administrative commission to investigate. Now, I'm no great fan of administrative commissions. But they came in and they looked and looked and looked and they didn't find any legitimate basis for the accusations but they were absolutely shocked by the behavior of this circle of malcontents. So, seeing what 
destruction this was causing across the church, the commission stepped in and gave these individuals a choice of either leaving the church or some charges that have come up, that had come up, actually some outright first-person statements that had been made, and they have them in their minutes, first-person statements that would have been violations of federal law. They had a choice of leaving or being prosecuted. But they were encouraged to turn and repent and said, if you'll repent, if you realize that this was not good, that this was wrong, that the whole spirit of it was wrong, you'll be welcome and you can come back. And in the years since, some of them have reflected on these events and have repented and asked forgiveness. Some are still bitter and slanderous, still pushing false allegations, conspiracy theories, still unrepentant. There is no grace. That is what can happen. That's what can happen when you do not let go of anger but give room to the devil. First he takes a room, then he takes the whole house. Friends, good people don't do that. Good people just don't do that. So if you know and care about any of these individuals, and even if you don't know, you can pray. Then pray and intercede earnestly for them. Pray and fast that the Lord would bring them to a broken, repentant heart for what they did to this church. And above all, that they'll learn the power of grace. The lessons that we see there and the truths of Ephesians 4. Maybe it sounds real familiar because it's playing out, say, in your family. Like one family I know where the wife, the mother, died, cancer. The husband, heartbroken, but over time, over the next few years, he healed. And he realized he was getting older, he needed to have someone else around. You know how that if you've been alone. And he knew, he realized he was lonely. He needed someone to talk to. He needed a companion, a person around. So he went out and he, he met people and he remarried. His daughters were absolutely furious because in their mind, daddy had, by getting remarried, daddy had dishonored the sacred memory of their beloved departed mother. And they swore they would never talk with him again, and they never did. Fifteen years later, he has yet to see his grandchildren. 
And maybe in a way, realizing how petty they were, they were, he was so glad he had met this other woman and married so that he would have a, at least this companion to talk with and share his life with. That's what anger does. If, if you harbor it and give opportunity to the devil. Maybe you've got something like that going on in your family. Maybe it's in a club or a group. Maybe it's in your workplace. Let me tell you, there is power in forgiveness and in grace. You see, the new life is a li in Christ is a life marked by grace. Grace expressed in truthfulness and goodness in your words and in your deeds and by forgiveness as you relinquish your anger quickly and just let it go. To be humble, and kind, tender-hearted like Jesus was humble to the point of laying down his life on the cross for angry and self-righteous people who did not recognize what he was doing on their behalf and wouldn't have it appreciated if they did. Just as you've been forgiven, you forgive others. The word used here to forgive this time is karizomai. Karizomai. It's from the same Greek root as charismatic. And it means to show grace, to extend grace to someone, someone who has received grace, especially someone who has received grace gifts of the Holy Spirit, must offer the same kind of redemptive grace to everyone they meet and express it in words that impart grace to the hearers. What a wonderful picture. You see, Jesus forgave you so that you can and must forgive others. And for that, you just do it. You just say it out loud and let it go. And it's not your problem anymore, is it? You see, the folks in Beta Caspel had nothing to do with Nordholt's trickery. They only wanted a pastor who would love them, who would lead them, who would teach them. So they should not suffer for my discontent. And I decided I would be a good pastor to them. And as I look back on my years in Beta Cospel, I realized I was supposed to be there. I was supposed to be there. It was challenging. The people were stubborn. You have no idea. <laughs> the Presbyterian Synod were uncooperative. That's probably not a surprise. But I forged deep friendships, and God allowed me to impact many lives in, in ways that nobody else could. 
And when I returned to my studies, I, I found I had matured in my thinking, and it showed in my work. So as I angrily trudged across treeless, frozen pastures in that rawest, cold, bitter weather in Europe, I rehearsed those injustices that had been done to me, and then I realized that's not the kind of person I want to become. So I resolved right then to let go of my anger and to forgive Dr. Northolt. You know, the ironic thing about it, if he'd been upfront and honest with me and explained this church's situation and its need, I would have been disappointed. but I probably would have gone to Beta Caspel willingly, anyway. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.